ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, December 2nd. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Last month, WFHB reported on a routinely conducted firefighter training exercise that involved the burning of an old Bloomington home and resulted in toxic chemicals entering the area and landing in neighbors' backyards. There is an update to this story, with Bloomington officials, including the Monroe County Health Department, concluding that the ash and other debris did not have unacceptable levels of lead and thus were not in direct violation of state environmental standards. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management defines harmful levels of lead to be higher than 400 parts per million and none of the debris was found to exceed 200 parts per million. The fire department and the Monroe County Health Department are partnering together to offer blood tests to any citizens who are still concerned about the contamination. The alligator snapping turtle found throughout many parts of the Midwest and Southeastern United States, might possibly receive new protections due to their endangered status. Once abundant, over the last few years, there has been an increase in the destruction of the turtle's habitat, and people have begun hunting them in larger numbers for their shells, which can sell for a lot of money on the wildlife market. This species is particularly vulnerable due to its reproductive habits, as females cannot lay eggs until they are at least 12 years old, and they only mate once a year. The Fish and Wildlife Service is looking for public input on the decision to increase protections for the alligator snapping turtle through January 2022. When buying milk, most Americans primarily purchase it in plastic jug containers and occasionally in milk cartons. However, other countries such as Canada have switched to primarily purchasing bagged milk. A recent study from The Conversation, a scientific magazine, has sought to determine which container is the most environmentally friendly. Their research found that milk jugs and cartons require the greatest energy consumption through the production of plastic and paper, while milk bags require less energy due to being very compact. As many countries seek to reduce single-use plastic, it is possible that the United States could experience this change and have all of our milk be found in bags. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel.
In today's feature report, IER reporter Enrique Sands will talk about a U.S.-China cooperation that details a new agreement on climate remediation. That's coming up later in the program. And now for your headline stories. Duke Energy customers could see higher bills starting in 2024 if the utilities plan to improve infrastructure is approved. In a release, the company filed a six-year plan with Indiana State Utility Regulators. It said it would improve the reliability of its infrastructure that delivers electricity to more than 860,000 Hoosiers. If the plan is approved by the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, Duke Energy said it would make some requests to recover the investment costs. The company said it would seek to increase rates an average of about 1% a year between 2024 and 2029. The plan calls for adding additional smart technology to reduce the number and duration of power outages. It's also looking to prepare for more renewable energy sources, including electric vehicles and customers generating their own green energy. Duke Energy said it hopes to harden the electric grid to better withstand the effects of weather. Measures to strengthen the grid include upgrading wood utility poles to steel ones, modernizing substations, and moving some lines underground in outage-prone areas. The development of power infrastructure would bring new jobs, according to Duke Energy. The company estimates the modernization work will generate or support 1,270 Indiana jobs. The work also is estimated to generate an additional $4.3 million in state and local tax revenue annually. If Duke wants to improve our power supply grid, they would need to strive for a uniform statewide policy. Our current structure is vulnerable to the whims of every county having a different policy. The news release from Duke failed to mention any change in policy regarding homeowners who install solar. If we are ever to get off coal, the big companies need to pay homeowners retail rates on power they send to the grid. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says solar energy has the potential to comprise up to 40% of the nation's energy supply by 2035, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. But pushback from utilities and lawmakers could limit how much Hoosiers can contribute to the solarization effort. In 2005, Indiana legislators approved a billing mechanism that allows a residents and businesses to sell some of their solar power back to the grid. That led to a boom in solar installations and clean energy jobs around the state. But utility companies, stung by the drop in revenue from solar customers, pressured the Indiana legislature to drop the mechanism known as net metering by 2022. Since that legislation was implemented in 2016, the result has been an ongoing tussle involving consumers, independent solar power companies, legislators, and Indiana's powerful energy utilities. And it has led to what one clean energy company president calls a chilling effect on solar sales in Indiana. The U.S. Department of Energy recently released the Solar Futures Study, a report detailing the role of solar power in carbonizing the electrical grid to meet the Biden administration's goal to achieve 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030. According to the report, 
solar energy could produce enough energy to power all the homes in the U.S. in as few as 15 years as long as technological advances continue and the solar effort receives long-term policy and market support. Energy Department researchers said acceleration of clean energy deployment requires incentivization through mechanisms like tax breaks and net metering to move away from fossil fuels and increase adoption of both utility-scale and residential solar energy systems. Companies in Indiana have worked to eliminate net metering due to the incentives resulting cut in utility companies' monthly revenue. The credits earned by using the power generated by residential solar systems reduce the money that comes in to utility companies every month. That reduction in revenue, the industry has said, has affected how much money utility companies can put into maintaining infrastructure like power lines without raising prices. The end of net metering and lowered net metering rates for the foreseeable future mean that farmers, churches, businesses, schools, local governments, and homeowners will no longer have a financially viable reason to install solar and electricity systems. Despite the opposition from the Office of Utility Consumer Counselor and the testimony of many consumer advocacy organizations, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission found that Centerpoint Energy's proposed rate and the methodology it used to calculate it were reasonable and complied with the law. It approved the petition April 7, 2021. The decision is being appealed. An example of the impact on solar was offered. A church in Holland, Indiana, which is also a veteran slash center point customer, simply isn't going to do solar for their child care facility, even though some members of that church were willing to make substantial contributions to help pay for it. After analysis, they understood that it simply wasn't a good financial investment and they dropped the whole project. SB 309 blocks folks like these from the market. As the case was being decided, the four other major electric utilities submitted their own petitions to end net metering early and adopt new excess distributed generation rates. It's not clear whether solar will ever be an important part of Indiana's energy mix. It's fair to say that our politicians have no intention of meeting the milepost needed to have carbon-free energy by 2050. The Indiana Forest Alliance invites activists to stand with Salamone in a Saturday protest opposing the state forest's upcoming timber sale. The Alliance is gathering in front of the Allen County Courthouse at 12 p.m. to tell Governor Holcomb and the Indiana DNR that we own the public forest and we don't want to be used for commercial logging, the Indiana Forest Alliance said in a press release. Residents of Northeast Indiana said this in a 2018 petition, asking the state to convert Salamone River State Forest into a state park in an effort to protect the forest from commercial logging, but the petition was rejected. The timber sale is scheduled for Tuesday. If the sale follows the Department of Forestry's harvest plan, it will be the largest sale in the 85-year history of the state forest. Logging will remove 20% of the volume of merchantable trees from a 121-acre tract in the heart of the 956-acre forest, the Indiana Forest Alliance said. Salamone is one of two state forests north of Indianapolis, and it's the oldest section is 30 years away from returning to old growth. The public has until December 
13th to stop a potential oil and gas lease sale in Cook Inlet, the body of water that leads up to Anchorage, Alaska. The area is home to an endangered group of beluga whales on Alaska's southern coast. The Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is accepting comments on the sale and is currently reviewing the environmental impacts of the sale. If the sale goes through, fossil fuel extraction would threaten the subarctic waters and the wildlife that live there. One of the smallest whales, only 13 to 20 feet long, belugas are recognizable for their pure white color and a big fleshy melon-like protrusion on their forehead, which helps them make a wide range of sounds they use for echolocation and communication with each other. Belugas are social animals living together in groups ranging from small pods to hundreds of animals. If you observe them in the waters of Cook Inlet, you'll often hear the clicks, clangs, and whistles of the whales calling out to one another. Those sounds have earned the whales the nickname Canaries of the Sea. Though belugas live in the Arctic and subarctic waters around the world, a specific population has long lived in the Alaskan inlet. But Cook's Inlet's belugas are in serious danger. In 1979, the inlet contained about 1,300 belugas. By 2018, that number had dwindled to 279 for a decline of 80%. Their numbers continued to decrease even though they received protections under the Endangered Species Act in 2008. Many factors contributed to the population collapse, but one of the biggest threats belugas face today is oil and gas exploration. The Bureau canceled similar lease sales in 2006, 2008, and 2010. If enough people speak out, it will cancel the upcoming lease sales. The New York Times provides an example of climate change affecting the Washington, D.C. area. They report on President Warren Harding's blue silk pajamas, Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves, the star-spangled banner, and scripts from the television show MASH. Nearly two million irreplaceable artifacts that tell the American story are housed in the National Museum of American History, part of the Smithsonian Institution, the biggest museum complex in the world. Now, because of climate change, the Smithsonian stands out for another reason. Its cherished buildings are extremely vulnerable to flooding, and some could eventually be underwater. Eleven palatial Smithsonian museums and galleries form a ring around the National Mall, the grand two-mile park lined with elms that stretches from the Lincoln Memorial to the U.S. Capitol. But that land was once a marsh, and as the planet warms, the buildings face two threats. Rising seas will eventually push in water from the tidal Potomac River and submerge parts of the mall, scientists say. More immediately, increasingly heavy rainstorms threaten the museums and their priceless holdings, particularly since many are stored in basements. At the American History Museum, water is already intruding. It gurgles up through the floor in the basement. It finds the gaps between ground-level windows, puddling around exhibits. It sneaks into the ductwork, then meanders through the building and drips onto display cases. It creeps through the ceiling in locked collection rooms, thief-like, and pools on the floor. The mall is about 20 feet above sea level. The White House is 59 feet above sea level. If the U.S. and other countries continue to fail to respond to the threat of climate change, it is entirely possible that a new capital will be built on higher ground. In 
Northern British Columbia, Canada, Wet'suwet'en Indigenous Water and Land Protectors are putting up a fierce fight to keep TransCanada's 416-mile coastal gas leak pipeline from being constructed in their unceded territory. On November 19th, Royal Canadian Mounted Police raided an Indigenous-led roadblock cade with attack dogs and assault rifles. They arrested 15 people, including a journalist, elders, and legal observers at the front lines in the latest arrest in a series of them dating back two years. The Wet'suwet'en are doing all they can to stop construction of the pipeline because a third of it would cross their homelands on its way to a facility in Pacific Coastal Kitimat. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have refused to give consent for the project, never signed a formal treaty with the provincial government, and never relinquished their land. Much like the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline in the United States, this is both an environmental and a sovereignty issue. The Wet'suwet'en are attempting to protect sensitive headwaters as well as maintain control of their lands. And now for our feature, IER reporter Enrique Sanz will talk about U.S.-China cooperation detailing a new agreement on climate remediation. The vast majority of science points to human activity in the form of greenhouse gas emissions being the main culprit for climate change. Greenhouse gases from cars, factories, and other sources trap heat in the atmosphere, changing the Earth's climate over time. Climate change is changing the way we live, work, and play, and it's happening now. In Indiana, it's getting hotter, it's raining more, and in different ways. That's changing what we can grow, how we can grow it. It's making cities and towns have to deal with more flooding and other effects. It's killing more people every year. Climate change is changing everything. Two of the world superpowers have just agreed to do something about it. This is U.S. Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. The two largest economies in the world have agreed to work together to raise climate ambition in this decisive decade. So tonight I am pleased to announce on behalf of President Biden and Secretary Blinken that we have agreed to a basic framework for this cooperation going forward. In a surprise deal, the United States and China agreed to cooperate on climate action for the coming decade. In a joint declaration signed at the COP26 climate meeting in Glasgow, Scotland, both countries agreed to cooperate on regulatory frameworks and environmental standards related to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They agreed to work together to achieve a clean energy transition, policies to encourage decarbonization and electrification, and to deploy carbon capture technologies. The two largest carbon dioxide emitting countries also agreed to strengthen management and control of methane. The United States and China have no shortage of differences, but on climate, on climate, cooperation is the only way to get this job done. This is not a discretionary thing, frankly. This is science. It's math and physics that dictate the road that we have to travel. In another climate deal, a coalition of the world's biggest investors, banks, and insurers said they were committed to using their $130 trillion in assets to hit net zero emissions by 2050. The move could make limiting climate change a central focus of most major financial decisions for decades, according to the New York Times. 
The decision makes a lot of sense considering the Department of the Treasury's Financial Stability Oversight Council recently identified climate change as an emerging and increasing threat to financial stability. World leaders from 100 countries, including the U.S., signed the Global Methane Pledge, a goal to reduce methane emissions by 30% by the year 2030. Methane is a greenhouse gas at least 25 times as potent as carbon dioxide and trapping heat in the atmosphere. President Biden also announced the U.S. would heavily regulate methane through the U.S. EPA, a move that could reduce 41 million tons of methane, the equivalent of 920 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions between 2023 and 2035. This is U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking at the COP26 conference. Governments need to pick up the pace and show the necessary ambition on mitigation, adaptation and finance in a balanced way. We cannot settle for the lowest common denominator. We know what must be done. Keeping the 1.5 goal within reach means reducing emissions globally by 45% by 2030. The agreements made at COP26 could change the world, but only if countries stick to their pledges in word and in spirit, Guterres said. And I welcome the recognition of this fact in yesterday's U.S.-China cooperation agreement that I consider an important step in the right direction. But promises ring hollow when the fossil fuels industry still receives trillions in subsidies as measured by the IMF. Or when countries are still building coal plants. Or when carbon is still without a price, distorting markets and investor decisions. Every country, every city, every company, every financial institution must radically, credibly and verifiably reduce their emissions and decarbonize their portfolios starting now. The announcements here in Glasgow are encouraging, but they are far from enough. The emissions gap remains a devastating threat. The finance and adaptation gap represent a glaring injustice for the developing world. We need even more ambition in future revised nationally determined contributions. And we need pledges to be implemented. We need commitments to turn concrete. We need actions to be verified. And we need to bridge the deep and real credibility gap. The decisions made at COP26 could make a difference as long as future leaders decide not to derail it. World leaders wrote the Paris Agreement at a previous COP conference in 2015. More than 100 countries, including the U.S., agreed to take actions to limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. But the fossil fuel-friendly Trump administration pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. The Biden administration reversed course, but future administrations and members of the legislative branch that are beholden to fossil fuels could derail future independent American efforts to combat climate change. Biden's party controls the presidency, the House of Representatives, and has a slight majority in the Senate right now. It should be easy to make laws to reverse the catastrophic course of climate change, right? Nope. At least one Democratic senator, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, single-handedly derailed an effort to make some climate change efforts into law. Democratic lawmakers recently cut a major climate provision from a $3.5 trillion spending bill at the behest of Senator Joe Manchin. The Clean Energy Performance Program would have rewarded energy suppliers who transition away from greenhouse gas emitting fossil fuels like coal and natural gas and impose fines on those who did not. Manchin has said he is opposed to the bill for a variety of reasons, including the price tag, the effect of some of the social policies in the bill on the American people, and the speed of the legislative process. Those may be the reasons Manchin opposed it, 
but he also stands to gain from preventing climate change actions that would restrict the availability of fossil fuels. Manchin has made millions of dollars from a private coal brokerage he founded and has accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. The once ambitious plan was reduced to $1.75 trillion, with approximately $550 billion in tax cuts and incentives for electrification, the only climate provisions remaining. It's unclear whether the bill has any chance of passing without Manchin's approval. The Congress, though, did pass a bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill that could make some climate-friendly changes to the country's infrastructure. That remains to be Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at wfhb.org. And now for for our events calendar. A Devil's Backbone Saturday guided hike is scheduled for Saturday, December the 4th from 10 a.m. to noon. The guided three-mile hike to the Devil's Backbone, located in Charlestown State Park, is a feature normally closed to the public. But this is your opportunity to see it. Email jbevin, J-B-E-A-V-I-N, at dnr.in.gov to reserve your space. Spaces are limited. Enjoy a hidden cave hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 4th from 11 to 11.30. Meet Tony at Twin Caves parking lot for an easy, short trip out to see one of Spring Mill's standalone caves. The Sassafras Audubon Society Young Birders Club is holding its first meeting on Saturday, December the 4th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. at Butler Park in Bloomington. The activities are geared for children ages 5 to 10 years. This is a great way to get your child more involved with Mother Nature. Contact Casey Parks at daneparks at gmail.com for more information and to RSVP. Take the Shawnee Cave System Hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 11th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Join naturalist Morgan to hike the majority of the Shawnee Cave System while hearing about caves and rock formations. Meet at the Donaldson Cave parking lot. Plan for a rugged two-mile hike. Make your own wreath at the Honeysuckle Winter Wreath Workshop at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, December the 12th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. You will build your wreath with vines, then decorate it using natural items like acorns, milkweed pods, and sweet gum balls. This is an indoor workshop. All attendees must wear a facial covering. Register by December the 6th at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash winter dash wreath dash workshop dot dash 2021.
That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolar.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinzappel. Today's feature was produced by Indiana environmental reporters Enrique Sands. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report.